Right, well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Birmingham uh, downtown business, the business uh, of politics today. Um, it's a little bit more than that with Sharon. Sharon Thompson is uh, somebody who's been around Birmingham all of her life and she's made considerable inroads to changing quite a few things. Holds a political office, but actually sits in a number of other positions, you know, some basils and things like that. Interesting lady with a lot of character and a true leader and really a brummy sort of mindset for me. I've looked at you on social media, I've followed you on social media, I've looked at some of your video footages and you're in the council house. You stand your own, you tell people how it is and things like that. So I'm going to be quiet and sit in the corner today and not poke you too much, Sharon. But I just want to take the opportunity of welcoming you to the uh, downtown den and just, I'm going to give you, and I don't normally do this, an opportunity of introducing themselves, because what I normally read is what we've posted. I think get you to introduce yourself, and then I'm going to come back if that's okay. That's brilliant. And thank you very much for having me at the den. It's brilliant. So I'm Sharon Thompson, Cabinet Member for Homes and Neighbourhoods, which includes um, housing, homelessness, bereavement services and localism. But most importantly of all, I am a born and bred Brummie. Um, I've lived here all my life, I've been through various things and it's helped me to get to where I am now, but more importantly, to shape things for the future of other people. So 2014, you were elected into your first position. Prior to that, you worked for a housing association and things like that. I'm presuming that uh, initially when I started to look at it, the, the housing association set you down a route of really righting the wrongs and trying to make a difference. Actually, when you, when you research, when you go back further than that, your own personal experiences have probably shaped you and, and crafted your character and your attributes and things like that. So hopefully you don't mind us talking about it. At one point in your life, you were in quite a bit of trouble. You found yourself homeless and things like that. And you had some really sort of, you know, woeful times. Hopefully that we're not going to wish that on anybody else. But I mean, if I can tease that out of you, and if you can just spend a moment or two talking about when you became homeless, you know, I think that would be really interesting. Yes, I was um, 16 when I became homeless. Uh, me and my mum mm. had a falling out, as you do, um, and the doors was locked when I came home. Um, and, you know, it was a very difficult time. I wasn't, I always say I wasn't that resilient because I, I only ever had to sleep rough on the streets of Birmingham once and I, not something I could cope with. Um, and luckily I went to St Basil's and they supported me. Now, I went through different times there. There was some of the times it was actually quite, quite great because some of us, we were young and we all got on very well. And then there were other times that were quite horrific. So, you know, you know, at the age of 17, I was at one point, I remember me and my friend fighting over 50 pence because that's all we had to our name. We lived on porridge five days a week. On a Sunday, I used to um, pack my washing in a bag and walk from Mosley to wash with Heath to my aunt's house for a Sunday dinner and get my clothes washed. So it was very difficult for that age. Um, and I always says that, you know, throughout my life, I, that was one period that I faced. I then um, had my son at 19, I was pregnant at 18. Um, I became a single mom, I went through domestic abuse and actually my son was the point of, this, this isn't me, this isn't, this isn't what I want for life because of him. So um, completely, looked at you know going into work and that's when I started working for the housing association I was a volunteer to start off with um mm. used to go along with my buggy to volunteer in um in a, a local shop 
in Ladywood, where I used to live, in Lee Bank. Um, and then asked for, I actually asked for work experience at the local housing office and they gave me a week. They told me to apply for a job and I never got it. So I was like, they don't want me because it was my first proper job it would have been. And then eventually um, they said another post has come up. Why don't you apply? And I applied and I became an admin assistant. Stayed with them for a while, got a promotion to assistant housing officer and then decided that I didn't just want to be a working mum. I wanted a career. Um, went into outreach for a charity and then I went to work for the council and I was there for nearly a decade. I, I think what I find interesting is that you, 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 you're resilient and resilience is a topical sort of word these days. Actually, it's a brummy mindset rolling your sleeves up. You find yourself in a situation, you're going to sink or swim and things like that and, and, it, and it's fight or flight. So you, you, you've stood your ground and you, you've looked at where you are. A 16-year-old lost, you know, wandering around the streets of Birmingham is an horrendous situation to be in. Unfortunately, it still happens and it happens to this day. We haven't, we haven't got a mechanism, social mechanism around to deal with that. But what I am interested in is that you, you, your housing experience has seen you through. So you're a cabinet member now for housing. So some of the things that you learned working in, you know, the housing association has stayed with you. Now, we, we've, we boast some of the, you know, the prestigious sort of property portfolios in Europe. And if I can see some information out of you about that, I think people will be really surprised. Yeah, so I think um, in terms of uh, my portfolio, and I do feel very fortunate to be in it. I've lived in social housing, I've lived in council housing, I've lived in the private rented sector, and I've been through homelessness. So I try and bring that experience with me. But in terms of the actual portfolio, Birmingham's the biggest council in Europe. So literally in the country, I have the biggest political housing portfolio. So the only person that has a bigger portfolio than me in terms of housing is pretty much the Secretary of State. Um, so people don't realise that about the size of the portfolios in Birmingham. And that's the same with bereavement services in terms of the cemeteries and the crematoriums. So there's some serious decisions that we have to make and sometimes they're not the most popular. Um, and I also represent Birmingham in Europe on the Euro cities, discussing housing and best practice across Europe that we can try to bring over here and share over there. I think what, what for me, if you talk about people, what Birmingham, Birmingham County, you talk to Brummies, there's a, it's, crowd, it's shrouded in secrecy. We don't really know what you get up to. We read the negative press all the time. We don't really see the good stories and they're positive from it. And you go out, you go find them and things like that. What does a councillor get up to? How many hours a week do you work? And what does your day sort of consist of? Now, uh, I'm going to answer something by saying, if I send something on social media at four o'clock in the morning, you respond. If yeah. I send you, if I send you an email at ten o'clock at night, you respond. respond. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, probably so. easier, Paul, to ask us what hours we don't work. Um, okay. it's, it's, it's a non-stop job. We're constantly working all the time, and there's different things that you do. I still go out and do outreach every now and then because I think it's important to stay close to the ground, and it's actually something that I enjoy to doing. And then you've got the ward, so there's loads of things happening in the ward locally. Um, Casework is unbelievable. But in terms of as a cabinet member, a lot of it is, um, I'm quite one of those cabinet members is that I run a policy where I can sit in the, in the council house and deal with policy, but I want to know that the policy are going to be fit for purpose for those that are delivering it and it's going mm. to affect people's lives because that's what's important. 
So I tend to make sure that I also go out and visit the centres, you know, I'll sit and do the call centre with um, staff before, I'll go to the mortuary and visit the mortuary staff, I'll look at new projects, start partnerships, and look at new innovation that we can bring across into the city. So there's quite a range. We've just recently um, announced the partnership with um, Housing 21, where we're looking at two sites in Birmingham where it's going to be um, almost co-produced with 60 year olds. So they're gonna help to design the scheme, the services and everything about it, which I think is really, really important. I think if we look at some of the housing and some of the things that's happened in the city, we are moving, we are going fairly quick, but we're not going quick enough. We've got a lot of people that can't have affordable housing. We've got a lot of people that are struggling, that have got reasonable jobs. And if you look at people that are working at Land Rover, 30,000 pound salary and things like that, the, the property market is, is escaping, isn't it? It's getting away from us. What can we do to bring that back to us? I think it's about, um, I think after COVID-19, we all need to readdress what we're doing, I think in effect. Um, yep. We really need to look at um, what the not just the housing market in isolation, but also the wider e economy. So you're talking about the transportation, we talk about jobs, all of it is interlinked in all of that. Um, I think for me as a politician, part of my job is actually to be lobbying the government on some of these things, because there yep. are a number of policies that make it very difficult. Birmingham is the biggest council house builder in the country, and still we're in a very difficult position in terms of housing, meeting the housing needs. And that's because it's not easy for councils to build when you look at the financial model. So some of that is the lobbying. And um, some of it is looking at actually outside your own authority onto the regional level, which is brilliant. And, you know, I work with Andy Streets on some of the things around housing and other local authorities and look at some of the emerging issues. And I think the biggest thing for me personally is making sure that we are in a space where we're looking more at the preventative measures of things that push people into crisis rather yeah. than only dealing with the here and now. So it's really a lot of the forward planning. So I know in the Birmingham plan, we are on board at the moment. We're in, we're in the right place when it comes to house building. Um, we're in the right place at the moment on track with that, which is great. Um, and I've recently met with some of the contractors about, are we getting back on site because we don't want to slow down? It's always bringing innovation in, so the house building in terms of using modular and different things like that. So there's a whole range of things, but I think the important thing is with housing is making sure that we're connecting sectors and not operating in isolation. So, you know, we've got the council and the housing associations, but we also have to have a really strong relationship with the, um, with the developers, also those in the private rented sector, because it has a knock-on effect of the overall picture. I think that um, well, I interviewed Ian Ward. Ian was very good. You know, he's very clear in his mindset where he wants to go. No Ian a while and everything like that. But if we just, uh, last week, I interviewed Stuart Holt from Javelin Block. I don't know if you ever met Stuart. He's a developer in the city and he creates some really prestigious uh, properties by re-energising industrial sort of buildings and things like that. It's fabulous around the jewellery quarter with the, whole, the old historical sort of turn of the century buildings and things like that. He says, if we start charging business rates, if we start charging rates on some of the empty buildings, they're going to vacate the buildings very quickly, these people who own them, and they're going to free them up for, you know, for, for development and things like that. What do you think around that? Is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can tease these properties? There's so many empty, vacant properties around the city. What's the answer? 
I think we need to start looking at more innovative ways of using some of these spaces. So, you know, particularly in places around the jury court, and this is just a little bit of a personal thing for me, it's looking at actually how can we have businesses and living spaces yep. so that they can, you know, so that they're used in a very different way so you can get people that are on that business um, track already, but also, you know, we're getting the accommodation in and it's bringing in that level of um, income in that way as well. So I think we need to be creative about how we utilise some of our spaces. Um, and also the key thing for me also is about making sure that we don't leave, leave people behind. So what we don't want to do is to create lots of estates where there's not mixed tenure. Brilliant. What's, uh, let, let, let's deal with the homelessness. So let's deal with the first the numbers. I say it is about 150 homeless people. Where I got that figure from is where I've just read. I've also seen two or three other different figures. Understand there's a few people that have, have taken a career of begging on the streets who aren't homeless, who just drive into the city or come into the city, start begging. So all of that aside, all the uh, all of the issues around it, let's look at the, the genuine people that are homeless, you know, and that type of thing. So we had a unique opportunity with COVID, and this is one of the positives that came out of COVID, that we found temporary accommodation for them, you know, and we, we, we helped them, we encouraged them, and really we forced them off the streets into some form of accommodation. How many was there? What was the your version of the numbers? So my version of the numbers is, is when it came to um, single homelessness, so single individuals, the yep. council helped over 500 people. There was 505 people that came okay. forward just since March. So some of those within that number, 70 were rough sleepers. Yeah. Um, and we commissioned a commercial hotel to... Um, to house them in for temporarily, because it was about not mm. spreading the virus. So they had three meals a day, and we used that in Birmingham as an opportunity that whilst they were indoors to actually do assessments on them, see what their long-term plans were, what we could help them with. And of the 15th of June, we emptied the commercial hotel, so we're no longer using it. And all of those people have either been offered a permanent accommodation, um, more sustainable or stable accommodation in terms of supported living. Some yeah. have been reunited with their families, which I think is also great. And yeah. I think we probably had about two that went back to the streets, but it wasn't because they weren't made an offer. Um, the government is actually holding Birmingham up as an exemplar of the way we mobilised and we reacted to that, which is really, really good. Um, and I think the other thing of people say to me, well, why couldn't we have done this before? I think there's a number of reasons. The first one is that um, one was financial. So government mm -hmm. put a lot of money into this. The second one was around policies, national policies. So the government said everyone in, which also meant those that had no access to public recourse. So we supported those as well in terms of housing. And the third thing is about the city itself. Birmingham is a very, very giving city. So if you mm. work around the city centre, you'll find people will buy someone a cup of coffee, will buy them a Greg's. But because there was nobody about on the streets, when there's usually people feeding and everything else, what happened was those that were less likely to engage, all of a sudden wanted to engage because it was a coping mechanism. So we managed to get them in. We got down to single figures on the streets, which we haven't had for nearly a decade. The numbers are starting to creep back up. Um, as the city centre opens back, I couldn't imagine it. But I have to be very clear with people that what we saw 
was a response from the government to um, the pandemic, the real housing crisis in terms of homelessness could come further down the track. Yeah, we're, 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 gonna be, we're going through some very turbulent times, you know, socially, economically and things like that. And ultimately, so many people are going to be out of work and not going to be able to afford it. So we've really got to be our ducks in a row for that old cliche. Six months, 12 months, and probably a five-year plan of what we're going to do, how we're going to solve things. Now, what, what, what I find interesting is 70 people, we've got them off the streets, we've looked at them, we know who they are, we, you know, we understand their complex problems and things like that, we've got all of that. So what support has the council got for delivering some of the services to these 70 people? What I'm thinking is some of the specific charities, some Basils, you know, Cypher, Fireside, all of these, what, what support mechanisms has the council given to those organisations? And that's not your personal involvement as a board member of St Basil's, of course. We'll come I'm on to that. I'm a board member with them at the oh, moment. I thought you was. That was I before, was. was before, was before. So oh, well, um, we, we can find you in a couple of spaces on some charitable boards, no problem at all. But <laughs> I'm not bad with anything to do, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> we can back, back to the question. <laughs> so, um, so what we've done is we've got a number of commission services, St Basil, Cypher, um, Shelter, Crisis, the whole raft of them. And we've got this yeah. really big partnership for them. We all work together. Um, some of them have gone into Housing First, which is something that was rolled out across the region. Um, and that's something I've worked with Andy on. And that may get a property. And then they get three years worth of wraparound service to support them in all their needs, whether it's drug, alcohol, financial, they've yeah. got form on course. So that's brilliant. Um, then you've also got places where people can drop into, like Cypher, Cypher and um, places like Shelter that will also um, advocate for them and give that level of wraparound support. But I think one of the critical things that you can't, um, we can't forget about is the relationships that are built so you will find there will be a cohort of people that will be like, I'm not going to the council because it's the system. Mm -hmm. Because they've had things happen in their life that's like made them fall out with the system. But they might be more trusting towards Cypher or mm -hmm. towards Shelter. And they hold them and kind of nurture that relationship and help them to build up, get them back on their feet and find out what their specific needs are. So we've got drug and alcohol services that, give, that do outreach and do services all the time. We've got an outreach team that has a nurse on it. It's got, um, it's got a youth specialist. So if we come up with anybody that we find that's on the streets that's a young person, they know how to connect. There's a whole array of them. Our partnership board has over 30 agencies around the table, including the DWP, to make sure. And we have an entire homelessness pathway. So if you enter at any point, you will get a level of support. It's, it's phenomenal the work that's been done my hat goes off to people like you know Jean Templeton and you know Vicky at Shelton and many others because you know their organizations work tirelessly as do the council I think and if we um, if I put that out there that you've got an organization working with 30 organizations to try and resolve this I don't I'd, I'd be amazed if anybody knew out there exactly what was going on there's a huge amount, and I think that one of the things that, when I came into the portfolio, I was very clear that I didn't want um, to work in isolation. I'm very big on collaboration and partnerships. Mm -hmm. So it had to be a partnership approach. So that's why the um, preventing homelessness strategy 
it's not owned just by the city, it's owned city council, it's owned by the entire city and the partnership board. I think another key area, Paul, is um, experts by experience. And I know because I was a homeless teenager, I know how much, you know, um, we can get, we can get caught up in policy and people fall through it. So we have a cohort of people who have been homeless, have lived through the housing pathway, and they challenge the pathways for us and tell us where we're getting it wrong. I have to say, some of the charities are fabulous. St Basil's and so Working with Carly, you know, looking at some of her problems, some of the team's problems. And the roof literally coming in a week or so ago was just unbelievable. And everybody pulled together just to give them that level of support. It was, but if you sat back at New Year's Eve and said, happy 2020, here's to a great year, you couldn't have thought, you know, thought about some of the things that's happened and everything else like that. So let's look at where we are with COVID. What have you personally learned, you know, under the pandemic and the way that, that society's reacted and what you've had to do? What do you take out of this? I want your negatives and your positives. Okay, so I think um, positives has been the responsiveness mm. of um, everybody, really. So that's, that's, that's um, people, that's organisations, that's council officers, that's us looking at policy things decisions that probably would have taken a lot longer when we start talking about red tape and everything else that comes with that we realize yeah. we're a lot more agile than we thought we was and we can respond very well um i think this kind of thing online working has been mm. great it means we can connect with a lot of people very quickly and across the country or even the world so that's been really really positive um i think um it's been on a personal level it was difficult at some points because my portfolio has bereavement services homelessness and housing so if you think um we were at the sharp end so particularly when you looked around april i have registrations in the portfolio we registered over 2200 deaths in april wow. alone april 2019 we registered over 800 so the need for capacity, supporting people, it was very difficult. So we had to work really agilely um, mm. and be creative and work stronger with um, different partnerships. I think um, some of the downfalls, the pitfalls, um, one I will aim directly at the government. And that is um, when you see the announcements that come out on the television, that's when I know they're coming out. So sometimes I'm sat in my house on a Saturday and I see an announcement about something on homelessness and my phone starts ringing and it's like, we didn't know that this was coming down the track. So I think the communication could have been a lot more stronger in that point. Um, yeah. and, and obviously, um, you know, we've had a lot of infections across the country. So I think some of the messaging could have been a lot stronger. Um, I think um, the, one of the most difficult things I think is, is with issues like this, because it's so concentrated, you see inequalities surface a lot quicker. So you see the inequalities, particularly with, between different communities. And it's, when I say between different communities, I don't just mean in terms of fame, because that's been very prevalent in terms of, you know, the death rate and the infection rate and the, you know, the physical responses to that, but also in terms of class as well and mm. different communities and how things people are acting. So that, that, that as well. And I think, the fear for me moving forward in terms of housing and it's a genuine fear is that um i don't think we've seen anything yet i think that we've 
um, scratched the surface with the ban on evictions. Um, but ultimately, those rental accounts are still clocking up. Some, yeah. particularly those in the private rented sector, haven't always um, supported their tenants in putting packages together. Domestic abuse has gone up through the roof. So, um, you know, there's, there's difficult times ahead with the economy, particularly with people being furloughed and jobs that will be coming up being lost. So let, let, let's step away from politics a little bit. Uh, the legal system, you're involved in the legal system, aren't you? Yes, so I became a magistrate in 2008. Uh, how, why? What, what was your mindset there? Well, because of all the things I'd been through as an individual through my teenage years, I had mm. this little mantra once alive, once I had my son, and that was I was not going to be a victim of life issues. I was going to be victorious through them. So things that I'd been through and people that had been around me had faced, whether that was with the legal system or whether that was actually um, things that I'd faced personally. I had this yeah. thing about I wanted to influence change. So prior to even politics, um, even being involved in politics, I was going to places like um, the Home Office. I was, I was meeting with ministers talking about um, um, inequalities and underrepresented groups. But they would say to me, Waits, which is a charity, a women's charity, say, come along, and I'd go along and I'd just say my piece, because you know, I'm not afraid to say what I think. We know um, that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I would do a lot of that. And then um, it came up, there was a seminar with Operation Black Vote, um, which is dubbed as the place for, not black politics, but they encourage ethnic minorities to get involved with mm. civic life. Um, and I went along to something kind of magistrate and I was blown away by Simon Woolley. Um, and I decided to apply. I, I thought it wasn't for me. I had a gold tough, dreadlocks. I always saw them as a little bit rumpole of the Bailey. But um, I put my application in and the BBC tracked me all the way through it. And I think it was the same week that um, Obama was first elected, was the same sort of week that I, that I kind of became a magistrate. So it was really exciting. It was good for my son as well to see that. Um, I didn't think they'd accept people like me, but they did. And you know, that was me on my civic journey. And what did you find? What did you see? And how did it leave you feeling? Because I've been and looked and, and a magistrate's team seems to have constraints. You know, you want you look at somebody who's in front of you and you think, this person, I have no choice but to send this person to prison, knowing full well they don't need that. What they need is somebody to feed them, somebody needs to clothe them, house them and give them a job and give them an opportunity. But you just see them going around and around the system, don't you? I'm still in your thunder a little bit there, but what did you, you say? No, I, I think, I think the, when I first became a magistrate, I thought I could make change. Mm. Um, I quickly realised that I, what I can do, I'm not there to make change, I'm there to implement the law, which was very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's important, what I learned was it's really important that everyday people, normal people like ourselves, are at all different levels of decision making, um, particularly in our own city because it makes a huge difference to the mindset of the person on the other side in terms of their thought process and the prejudice and stuff. Um, I found it fascinating. Um, I, because you, you have a scale of where, where the actual, you know, the sentencing guidelines were. And sometimes you hear people say something, you're like, no, that's not fact, that wasn't factual, or actually that's your prejudice kicking in. So mm -hmm. it's easy to um, 
it, it's good to challenge some of that and some people find it comforting having someone who looked like them on the bench mm. they felt that it, you know they felt that, that would make any difference if it, not if that it would make any difference it makes no difference to the decision yeah. but for some people they felt like they were having a fair trial whether mm. whatever their whatever they think of the system is so that was very interesting um i learned a lot about the law i really did and decision making and um my mm. own decision making and my own leadership it's made a huge difference to on a personal level um but you know i would encourage anybody who was thinking of becoming a magistrate to do that if they have the time um you know taxi drivers businessmen teachers whoever everyday people that's what's needed because you are a lay person just learn about society learn about law but learn about you know what's going wrong and, and absolutely and, just take, and you, you don't even need to take action you don't even need to um know the law to become a magistrate because you've got a legal mm. advisor but i would always say to people you know i was one of those people that you know there was things about the system that i didn't agree with and i thought was wrong and actually when you feel that something isn't working that's when it needs you more than you need it so you need mm. to step into that space if you want to be a catalyst for change it, it's quite interesting that uh, we have magistrates and there's a, there's a bunch of magistrates then we go into Crown Court, we have jurors and things like that. But if you look at the French judicial system, it doesn't have magistrates, it doesn't have jurors, it just has judges, it has like people to make decisions solely based on matter of fact, matter of law. Whereas we have an opinion and we have an understanding and we have a little bit of left and right. I still don't know which is the best. I get the feeling we've got the best judicial system in the world, but you know, we'll see how that pans out. Are you still seated as a magistrate now? No, so I took a break because of cabinet. My hands are full at the moment with cabinet. So I've taken a break from being on the bench. Um, so I'm not doing that at the moment. There's some aspects of it I still can get involved with from a distance. Um, mm. And that's usually just approving things. Um, and, and, you know, I also encourage other people to get involved in that space. So I give a lot of talks about getting into civic society. I still support Operation Black Vote. Um, I, I genuinely work with um, women's groups and particularly young people and BAME young people about why it's important to exercise our vote and also speak truth to power. What, um, I'm gonna, th these are almost yes or no sort of answer, sort of questions now and that type of thing. What do you think about uh, Richard Branson? Should the government bail him out and people like that? Philip Green and all that, their businesses. Should the government bail him out, yes or no? No. <laughs> okay. What do you think about um, Andy Street? How's Andy Street doing? Is he doing well or not? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, say, I'm, I'm teasing, yeah. I'm teasing. No, I actually, what I will say, what I will say yeah. is... Um, I've worked with Andy on homelessness since mm. since the beginning, um, and he's been very fair with me, and I've been very fair with him. Um, politics aside, we're both keen on the particular issue, so we, yeah. you know, we both support that. Um, I guess we're from different parties, so it's a little bit like being in a marriage that none of us signed up for. But um, yeah. we, we get on with it, and we get the job done. So you know, I would never criticise him as an individual. Uh, you know, and, I, and obviously I know Andy fairly well and we've interviewed him and things like that and there's interest, interest around that. But what I think is that, um, 
lot of politicians don't come from a working class background, don't understand the issues. They may do, they come from privileged backgrounds, but actually they may understand the issues, they may have a better handle on things than maybe you and me on certain occasions, but they're not perceived to be that. So the, the, the current, you know, the, well, May's government were all very privileged. Boris, who's the ultimate privileged person, I think, has, rich, has, has appointed Richie Sonak and people like that, who have got to admit has done an incredible job, you know, trying but to do some of the things that he's done. However, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, but when you look at it from the other side and those that are most affected by disadvantage and those that are in more of a difficult position, they're the ones that are most affected and those are the ones where some of the policies harm the most. And I think that's what we need to get away from. And I think we need to make sure that there are more stronger voices that are actually passionate about the area and close to the ground. Um, I mean, you know, I've worked, I've, I've worked and lived in Birmingham all my life. Um, in terms of the region, I know that I've done a lot of work with Liam as well, particularly on homelessness. And, um, you know, Liam's been out with me at one o'clock in the morning doing outreach. I think it's really important that people that are in a position of um, position of, of power and influence actually connect with the ground because you know you make decisions about people's lives. It, it, it's essential. So you know I, I'm not a, an advocate for some of the decisions that have been made nationally. Um, those decisions have led to where we are in some of the crisis. Yeah. Um, sleeping has gone up by 167% over the last decade. Wow. So um, you know we need to really look at. The policies and what I'm really interested in, to be honest, is um, I'm very interested in systemic change, and that's what we need to look at: system change and policy change. What's um, this is um, uh, one of the viewers? What's your advice for becoming a councillor? How do they do it, and would you do it? Now, it's at this point that you say, "Don't, don't ever go there." Just <laughs> no, in, in seriousness. What advice would you give to somebody who, who would like to become a counsellor? I think the first thing that I would say to someone that wanted to become a counsellor, you should put yourself forward. The first thing is, is to be very clear on your own politics, is what I yep. would say. So, you know, if, if you're affiliated to a particular party, then you need to make sure that you've joined it in order to get in anywhere in it. Um, mm. I think that it's really important that you understand the remit and the role. So some people think that it's not much beyond the campaign season when actually there's a lot of work to be done and decision making involved in that. Um, if you're working for an employer, I'd make sure that they are an employer that, that, that would give you time off to do the duties. Um, and I would say put yourself forward. There's a number of schemes that you can get to know more about it. I think that if you get involved with your local party, whichever your political persuasion is, um, they will support you in um, campaigning activities, policy work, there's a whole range but one of the things that I do always say to people is find something that you are passionate about that you want to champion when I first became a councillor 24 20, 2014 um, I remember the week before my election I had rough sleepers that said to me they wanted to leaflet for me and I was like no no it's okay bub but it was because <laughs> no, because but that was ultimately but that was because I was spending time with them because I was passionate about homelessness there was a homeless person called by the name of Paddy, who's no longer alive, um, but he he made an incredible difference to me. Um, we did a, I lobbied for us to do a scrutiny um, report on homelessness 
and he was the motivation. And I said to him, if I was ever elected, can't promise you I'll get the change you need, but I promise your voice will be heard. And everything that I've done on homelessness has been because of that one individual who motivated me with it. So find something that you're yeah, passionate okay. about and you'll be great. Wonderful. So, okay, so we, we, I know you've got aspirations. You know, you, you, you're one of the most determined people I've, I think I've ever come across to, to, to really progress and things like that. The good news is you've just been elected as a Metro Mayor for the West Midlands Combined Authority. Have you told Andy that? <laughs> well, you've just been elected. What's he got to do with him anyway? So congratulations. What's the plan? What's the plan? What are you going to do? What are you going to change? So what would I change? I think ultimately, I think the one thing is about making sure there's better relations across the region. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but mm. I do think some of the, um, the workings between local authorities and the relationship with the CA could be offered a lot stronger. Um, people get very caught up with boundaries sometimes. Um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of transportation and the connectivity across the entire region. Um, and I think there's a huge amount to be done when it comes to skills and jobs. But what I do think is, is one thing that I think needs to be done a lot stronger is connecting different levels and layers of people. And I know it's very complicated, but I think we need more experts by experience. So it's quite easy to just be working with the strategic thinkers, which is needed. But I think there needs to be more avenues for everyday people to feed into the system. Okay. So we've got a 1.3 billion transport uh, improvement plan, haven't we? We've got a lot of things that we're going to move forward to. Uh, some interesting things around green, green credentials and things like that. I commented to you earlier about your green credentials. It's not apparent that you have strong green credentials. I'm going to give you the opportunity of putting the record straight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think probably because of the way that the comms is done around the portfolio and what we're working on. But, um, you know, I was the vice chair to the um, Route to Zero um, task group for the climate change in Birmingham. Um, when it comes to housing in particular, we are looking at how can we make things, um, you know, more energy efficient when it comes to um, the housing market and particularly when we're looking at newer build. And I'm a very big, um, I'm very big on place making. So rather than actually just focusing on the housing bricks and mortar, it's about actually the whole neighbourhood, which in that would include, that's where you link transportation into the housing agenda and really looking at places where we could have kind of, you know, carless streets on some, on some estates and child friendly streets and things like that. I think that's really, really important. So um, in terms of the green agenda, I, I am very much involved in that, um, particularly um, looking across Europe at some of the best practice when it comes to housing and how that they can work with their housing stock. The difficulty is, is that we have a budget and it's very, um, you know, some of the things we do need to lobby for nationally, but I'm very much into looking at how we can be more innovative when it comes to housing. Well, you are the Mayor of the West Midlands, so... What are you going to change green credentials wise what would you drive you've got a bottomless pit of money spend some money what's it look like for us um i think in terms of the if we was talking in terms of the um green agenda i think the plan that we've got at the moment is ambitious but i don't know whether it's it, i don't necessarily think it's um achievable straight away 
I think some of the local authorities are starting from a different space. Birmingham is definitely. Um, if, I, if I could change more, I probably would see ultimately less cars on the street, which people are probably, in the current climate yes. of COVID, I think that's the right direction to go in. I would definitely be pushing for this region to have the first set of e-scooters as well, um, and looking at different modes of transport, and particularly for older people. But I would yeah. ultimately be looking at, we need less cars on the roads. So free transport? Absolutely. But I, th I think the London model actually for younger people, I think, mm. um, I think that's, that's really important. So transportation for younger people, I know we don't have a, um, the metro system isn't as strong as it is in London, but um, I would definitely be looking at for those under 16s and stuff to have free transport. I think it opens up the market for them. I also think um, that we should be looking at packages for um, new people going into business in that transition stage because that would help them also brilliant so you've just become uh, chair of the police and crime commission as well dave thompson chief constable is now reporting directly into you and bearing in mind your experience as a magistrate what influences would that have on decisions and policies and just general behavior of the police bearing in mind that the police at one point were heroes and now they're kind of getting some bad PR and they've become villains, haven't they? Quite wrongly, but they've been turned you know, into villains. What influences would you have on the Chief Constable? I mean, one of the things, I think it's very difficult for the police. Um, I think one, because of the resources that they've got ultimately, um, and also it's perception a lot of the time. Um, one of the things that I would be very big on is around the training aspects and how that they operate with communities. Um, what I found very interesting, I do have an interest in the police, and I actually went down and spent some time at the, um, the air, with the airport police, and I found that quite okay. fascinating. And it was actually looking at their modes of um, uh, training and looking at unconscious bias as well. Yeah. And who do they target and who do they think? So I think there's definitely a thing around a, um, a training need. I think there's more to be done in terms of the community policing and the role that the PSPOs can, the, the, yeah, the, 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 community, yeah, the community policing can do. And I ultimately think that, um, I, I think that the police need to work more closely in terms of the partnerships with um, local authorities and communities, because that's where all the intelligence comes from. And if that breaks down and the relationship isn't there, then we have a huge problem. They do have a resourcing problem. And I think they need more resources. Ultimately, I think it's good to see more police on the streets. So you're just spending money. You're, yeah. you're giving them money, you're freeing up money and everything else like that. It's training as well. So what, let, let's drill down on the training. Is it the perception, the way that they deal with people, the way they interact with people? Is that what you're trying to get at? I think, it, I think some of it is about the perception and how they interact with the people. I think mm. we all have biases. You can't run away from it. Of course Every individual. We do. Of course we do. And if, yeah. you're, if you're operating in a system that's supposed to be unbiased, then you, know, you, are, you need to make sure that the training is there because the bad cases that we see are the ones that people's trust and confidence goes out of the window. I also think that... Um, policing and they are making the efforts now needs to be more reflective of the people that they're serving so are we training people or probably getting younger people into the system of um, working in the police force but actually at all levels one of the biggest things that I have against any institution is the fact that there's ultimately sometimes there's a little bit of a glass ceiling 
Um, and it's about how do we make sure that people who are close to the ground actually can work their way through through the ranks. Okay, so it's going to be, uh, and I'm looking at the time as well because time's running away with us. I can sit and carry on talking to you and everything else, but I know, but some people have got work to do. Um, not like us, apparently. Um, so what? <laughs> so you, you, you're pushing for an MP's position. You want to become an MP. Why do you want to become an MP when you're having such a massive impact at the council? Do we want to lose you as an MP? Do we want you to go to the uh, House of Commons? I don't know. I, I think personally, I'd rather keep you, you know, around your, your feet on the ground here and drive what you're doing here. But what differences could you make? As an MP? So I think um, I think that's that's quite interesting. Um, in Birmingham, the size of the portfolios you have, you probably have, if I'm honest, more responsibility than a yeah. backbench MP. So we yeah. do have more responsibility than a backbench MP. Um, I think um, at the last general election, I did put myself forward to stand for MP. Um, and part of that was about, I'm very big on representation, so I think that, you know, we should have good representation across the city. Um, 10 MPs, we've got no Afri African Caribbean MP. Um, and in the current climate of what's happening at the moment, you're finding that people are reaching out for that leadership and wanting that kind of dialogue into, um, into, down, into um, Parliament. Um, one of it's thinking about you know where do you go next i think that i could do a good job a good enough job as an mp but then likewise i enjoy what i do in local government so um you know it was an opportunity to put myself forward it was more so an opportunity um to just really see what the process was like network and everything else that comes with that um have i got it in me for that kind of fight Again, I, you know, I would never say that I would turn my back on local politics either. Um, mm. I really, I love Birmingham. It's my home. If I could represent my, my city as an MP, that would be the dream. If not, I'm happy to stay local. Well, you're still the Metro Mayor anyway, so we, we can rely on that. <laughs> the other thing, religion crops up every once in a while, doesn't it? What's, what, what's your take on religion and, and, you know, where are you, where are you around religion and, and does that influence you and should that influence people more? Um, so in terms of faith, I mean, it's quite interesting. People don't realise this, but um, before I became a counsellor, I was actually um, an overseer in my church. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I went to Renewal Church and I was a um, regional See, I overseer. Know, I know that. <laughs> so that was a real, you know, that was a real kind of um, faith leader position yeah. and people don't realize that um i think for me in terms of faith and how do you bring that into your role i think it is important i think you can bring that into your role i mean one of the things that i've done is is one i try to be a compassionate leader i also think that the role that i'm in is about it's a privilege to be in this role but it's about serving and serving the community and helping those around me in ways that I couldn't have done if I wasn't in the position. So you can bring the principles of your faith into your leadership. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, there's some things that might conflict, um, but also you have to remember that this role you're in here to represent people. We have some great faith groups across the city and I wonderful, feel very fortunate to be able to work with some of them. I mean, the, uh, the combined authority set up 
the faith leaders group, didn't they? Amazing. Kind of an answer to the COVID, but it just needed to be done anyway. And it was in the pipeline. And I think some of the people that have been involved in that and experienced and benefited from that would say it, it was a, you know, a step forward. Really some incredible faith leaders, particularly, um, you know, some of my favourites are probably in the Sikh community. I think that, you know, we've got some really amazing um, yeah. faith leaders and it's such a richness. And I think that's one of Birmingham's strengths. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? We get on. <laughs> we get yeah, on well. that's it. You know, when you talk about the best of the city, it's usually through, you know, the way that we get on and we share food and everything else. So I think yeah. it's great. It is indeed. It's a, uh, and I'm looking looking at the time and things like that and being nice it's been an absolute genuinely privilege to sit and speak to you and things like that hopefully we're going to be able to do some more with this we're going to invite you to host a lunch or a dinner and we'll bring some people in to listen to you i think we could have talked for hours and hours and hours and i think we'll continue to do that in the future obviously Absolutely. um some of the work that you've done is incredible and i'm 100 convinced that you're never going to retire you're just going to keep going and going and going You'll be banging that drum for Birmingham and just making it louder and louder and making it happen for the city. From my personal perspective, you've been very supportive of me, some of the things that I've done. And it's been an absolute privilege for you to be on downtown, your business in the, in the den. And I'll just leave you to say your last few words. Yeah, and I would like to say thank you to you, Paul, for all the things that you do in this city. I don't think, you know, it doesn't get unnoticed. And also, you're great at connecting people. So I think, you know, that's really it's really we're really thankful for that so thank you to what thank you, you do and it's great that you do this um that the, the den's operating and you know we're getting time to share um i love this city and i and i you know absolutely love this city and i'm really thankful for the position that i'm in and i just hope that you know that i can inspire other people to get into leadership roles and move themselves up the ranks and really lend their voice and that i can do my job in a way that's effective that supports community and doesn't block things moving forward so you know thank you very much thank you very much for everyone that's watching thank you very much and we'll speak soon thanks for your time take care thank you